Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here at Craft Wine Cellars in Carlton with Chad Stock. Uh, it's August 2nd, 2018. And Chad, we're going to start you off by asking you, why wine? Well, uh, I still don't know the answer to that question, other than it seemed to be a great marriage of personal interests and also work and lifestyle opportunity of something that I just naturally gravitated towards. I uh, was a bit of a science nerd, was interested in food, I grew up eating well. Fortunately, my mother was a nutritionist. Both my parents were in science uh, professionally and, and my brother, so I think it kind of ran in the family a bit. I was not sure what I wanted to do when I was in college originally. I chose a business major because that's something that you study when you don't know what you want to do. It's just kind of a good practical thing. <laughs> Uh, somehow, honestly, just started to get into wine in my uh, late teens, early 20s. Um, so I would be the person that would show up to a party and have a bottle of white wine, Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand or something, because I had no taste for beer and I had no taste for hard liquor at all. I just didn't appreciate it. Uh, but you know, but I was social, right? And I was, you know, I was partying in my early 20s, and and I really started to gravitate towards wine. Was purchasing books. And that's something that's habitual for me. Like I tend to, I tend to get really deep into something before I recognize, like, oh my gosh, wait a minute, I've just read now ten books on wine, and what is this? <laughs> and I'm going to wine tasting. So, um, the natural progression for me then was to look at it as a career. Once I had looked at it as an opportunity of something that I just wanted to do for fun, and I had never, I had never learned that you could actually go to school for winemaking. It was nothing that was ever introduced to me as an academic major. <clears throat> So once I actually had a chance to look into it, I looked at the curriculum, it was a bit intimidating, it's a lot of chemistry, uh, physics, and very complicated science degree. But, um, but when I had a chance to go to Fresno State in particular, which is where I chose to go to school, I really fell in love with the, with the, with the staff that was there. And uh, the wine master at the time, Ken Fugelsang, was just, I, I was just really taken by him. I thought he was an amazing man and uh, the rest of the staff really as well. And it just felt, it felt like this little miniature world inside of the university system that I'd never seen before. It was so communal, very much in the way that the Oregon wine industry is very communal. And it felt like there was like this support network of people that are incredibly passionate about what they wanted to do. Because outside of that, it doesn't really make much sense to be in this industry unless you really want to do it. Um, and that, I think that really caught my attention. So once I finished the curriculum and got into got into school essentially, but once I finished and I graduated and I actually started doing a lot more of the work, I just never looked back. I just never even questioned it. Um, and so every once in a while somebody asks me a question and I can look back in history and kind of reminisce about it, but I honestly don't even think about it. It's just like, it's like breathing for me at this point. Sure. So after Fresno State, what did you do next? How did you end up here? So after Fresno State, I worked an apprenticeship in Napa Valley. And I was able to work in an amazing, amazing place called Rudd, which is in Oakville. And they were doing all the uh, native yeast fermentations. They had a lot of new progressive equipment. They were the first people to really start working with cement tanks on a large scale. And they had amazing estate vineyards. Of course, the quality was incredibly high. And so I knew that working in this environment would be very similar to, uh, I think, how we sort of perceive these uh, you know, Michelin star restaurants, right? Where it is just, it's incredibly intense. Mm -hmm. The attention to every single detail, there's nothing that's overlooked. And so it teaches you such 
strict, like rudimentary principles to execute perfectly and, and do it over and over and over in the repetition that's there. And it helped me establish a really great foundation of, of good skill in the seller. So that was really critical for me out of college. So, so then I had the theory and I had the science, but I really got started off on a strong foot in terms of high quality um, in the seller. And then from there, I was, uh, um, I was uh, brought on at Antiquitaire basically in 2007, so this is the time frame. Sorry, so 2006 I worked at Rudd. 2007 I was brought in at Antiquitaire and I wanted to be in Oregon, particularly. The lifestyle here, this state is gorgeous. Um, it was an affordable place for young people to move to out of college. The industry was really small, so it just seemed like there was opportunity. And, and I, I really liked Oregon wines at the time. I felt like lower alcohol, higher acid mm -hmm. kinds of wines for me were where I wanted to go. It seemed like the place in the United States to go for that style of winemaking based on the climate. So everything just felt like I just was like kind of head over heels in love, to tell you the truth. Um, it wasn't particularly about pursuing Pinot Noir or any kind of specific grape. I, I just, the community drove me to come here. So I worked for Antigua Terra for four vintages. And then uh, after 2010 was my last vintage. And I guess I would be considered the vineyard foreman, assistant winemaker, sales manager, et cetera, et cetera, because it was just a couple of us in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So you know, you wear multiple hats. Mm -hmm. So that gave me a whole much larger view of the profession coming to there from Rudd, because it was, I had to do everything with Maggie, you know, mm -hmm. who was the winemaker and founder. So from there, I started Minimus in 2011. I also started a small consulting company at the time, which basically strategically was more about trying to find a way to continue to have some income, but at the same time have flexibility to where I could adjust my work schedule for other people and start my own project and have a little bit more mobility and flexibility in my schedule. I also didn't have any resources really to start with. I had very little money. I had you know, 18 months no interest credit cards to buy tools and certain things that suppliers in the wine industry would let you pay for with credit. So a lot of my consulting was also actually based in trading for space. Mm -hmm. Or I'll help you with this problem if you can give me some grapes in exchange, things like that. So that I could get things that I can't pay for with a credit card. So that really covered my rent and covered a lot of my fruit in the very beginning in the first few years, which was really helpful. Um, and then Minimus grew basically each year, just a little bit, very organically. It was a response to demand, which I honestly didn't think was going to be there. Uh, I personally felt that the ideas that I had were not very radical. Um, I felt like it was just a natural progression of anybody that's in love with what they do. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't sure how the market was going to receive it. And I felt like it was going to potentially be so esoteric that it would be really limiting and I might never actually be able to have it develop into its own company. But that there would always be an audience for a small amount of these wines, right? Um, and I was quite wrong, uh, which is why I'm sitting here now. And I still can't imagine where this could go. But it far exceeds what I'm able to keep, like what I'm able to realize right now with my given resources and, and just time and things like that. I'm finding that the, the market is overwhelmingly, um, the response is well beyond anything that I can just achieve on my own. So I feel like I've made a real crazy breakthrough for the Oregon industry itself and that I've opened the door. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter for now for people to walk through it and kind of help. Mm -hmm. um, in 2014, I established Scrap Wine Company with my partners, Tara and Angelo Iannucci. And we brought on uh, an additional staff so that I actually had full-time people to help because this was clearly just a monster 
that we were trying to navigate and doing the best we could right, to figure it out. It has a business model that's unparalleled to anything I've found yet mm -hmm. for a point of reference to kind of help have a model. So now it's this team of people uh, that I can't take credit for. I'm just one part of six people that makes this uh, go around every day. Um, and we're, every single year, kind of making new steps, trying to you know, define wh who we are, what we're trying to do for the region, partake in community activities, and you know, expand on our knowledge and try to you know, give that back and see if we can educate in return to hopefully help other people uh, if, if possible. So Craft Wine Company is what we call the winery, which is where we are now. And we had three different ideas, essentially large sort of large scale ideas that we felt needed to be broken into three different brands or three separate projects of their own because we felt that their messaging behind each of them was significant enough to warrant their own attention. And that by doing too much under one umbrella or one brand essentially might create too much confusion, it might just be too much for people to absorb. So we started Omero in 2014, uh, as well as another project uh, called Origin. So we have three now, Minimus, Omero, and Origin. And what Minimus is, the way that we describe it now, um, is basically our research and development. So for the most part, what we're looking at with alternative styles of wine, alternative grape varieties, and in some cases, what we think are hopefully some groundbreaking ideas to push things that haven't actually been done yet, at least uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. We're looking for what organ could be in the future and what possibilities might be there out there for anybody that wants to diversify what they're doing or just have a different perspective than what is um, generally the kind of Burgundian narrative that is implied on the region. So we just, that's kind of the door, right? That's really sort of the big door that we've opened. Omero, what Omero is about is, it's really about ingredients. It's about knowing what's in your wine. So it's about truth and labeling. And the idea is that we believe we can produce wine that is from organic grapes and sustainably farmed fruit that is produced without any kind of additives. So we're doing all natural fermentations, okay, just a uh, native yeast. And we're not using any kind of additives except for sulfite. Um, on occasion, I'll, make, I'll describe an exception to that. On occasion, we do have to add tartaric acid to Pinot Noir specifically, but it's the only grape that we add acid to, um, which I'd like to come back to later on. And because we add acid to our Pinot Noir, if you actually look at the Omero labels, you'll see the Pinot Gris, the Pinot Noir, the Gamay Noir, and the Chardonnay. Those are the four wines we make. The, the ingredients that are in each wine are proudly listed right on the front of every bottle, very boldly. And you'll see that on the oh, Pinot Noir, it'll actually say tartaric acid, but on the others, it won't. And the reason why is because it's not about making wine necessarily without additives. It's just about truth and labeling. So it's really about like, look, I'm not trying to say that this is a better way. It's what I believe for myself. I just believe that the information needs to be out there for the public, mm -hmm. right? The way that we look at food, because wine is not an alcoholic beverage, it's an agricultural product. So if somebody else wants to use more stuff and use yeast from a laboratory and use enzymes and, and other kinds of chemicals and animal products, for example, which is another interesting concept for vegetarians and vegans, right? There's animal-based products in wine. And I think that if they want to do that, that's fine. So it's not an argument about better or worse. It's just about transparency. So it's like, do that, but put it on your label. Mm -hmm. Let people know, like that's all, you know? 
Um, and so that's really what it's about. So we put all the ingredients on the front of every label. We make the wines as affordably as possible. For the most part, they're very accessible for buy, what we call buy-the-glass programs for uh, restaurants all over the nation that can pour this stuff in larger volumes so that we can increase the uh, speed at which this information is uh, essentially disseminated to the public. So the idea was to potentially have these wines um, they're made from grape varieties that people recognize already from the region. So that isn't, we're not asking, we're not asking a consumer to have to understand Pinot Noir or that Pinot Noir is connected to the Lemon Valley, etc. Sure. So it's very approachable, right? So the more approachable it is conceptually outside of the ingredient aspect and the more affordable the price point is as well, the less we're asking for them to absorb and we're just trying to, you know, highlight that much more the, uh, the ingredient labeling on the wines. The uh, third project is Origin. And Origin is, uh, Origin is basically a designation program. Um, one of the things that I myself struggle with a bit, which is a fairly classic, I feel like a fairly classic or traditional kind of business model for most wineries in the US, so this isn't regional. Um, their two most expensive wines are usually one of two things. It's usually either something that's like a reserve blend, could have a, a, a proprietary name on it, maybe one of the owner's names or something whimsical, or it could just say reserve. And oftentimes, in my opinion, that's usually a vision of something that they want to taste in a specific way, and the goal each year is for that wine to taste exactly that way all the time. And there's a taste association with that that people look for each vintage, so when somebody falls in love with that wine, that's kind of what they're hoping to gain every single year. To isolate that first, to talk about the disadvantage of that concept before we go to the second one, is that that is very, very encouraging of additive, very heavy additive winemaking and industrial farming because consistency is death. And so if you're going to try to make something that is from nature taste the same way every single time, um, especially here, so I want to speak more locally, okay? Mm -hmm. I want to be specific now about Oregon. We work in a super marginal climate. It's very unpredictable. It can be hot as heck, it can be cold as heck, it can rain at any point in time, and the fruit's threatened by that. So, and most wineries are small, so the sourcing of their fruit is small enough that it's really tough to dilute differences from one vintage to the next just by mass scale blending like Budweiser does with their beer, for example, right? Sure. Which is an amazing thing. Um, and so we're so small that it's really tough for us to do it just by blending grapes together, you know, maybe I need a little more color one year, so I had a touch of Syrah. Maybe one year I need a little more acid, so I put a little Nebbiolo in there, opposed to adding a coloring agent, right? Or opposed to adding acid from a bag, right? I'm using grape varieties to kind of do these things to find balance. So for me, because I'm opposed to using additives, I mean, for me, that's like, it's like religion. Like, I can't, I can't do it, right? I can't do it. Um, I don't like the reserve concept, right? I don't like that because I, I believe it breeds mediocre winemaking, and I believe it encourages the public to expect consistency when I think that that is fine for cheap wine. Mm -hmm. It's not fine for fine wine and more expensive wines. Um, in my opinion, they should, be, they should be more educational, more enlightening, and more intellectually stimulating than that. And then the second concept is a single vineyard wine. And usually that single vineyard wine is a vineyard that has some cachet, the, the name is really prominent. Mm -hmm. um, the price of their fruit is very expensive. And it could be for very valid reasons, right? It's not, it's not invalid or anything necessarily, but it creates an economic situation to where a winery working with that fruit, if they're buying, or the winery itself, 
is growing that fruit and maybe they just sell some and keep some for themselves, it becomes expensive to make that wine. And you have to position that in the market in such a way that you need to be able to charge enough money to make it make sense, right? You, it's not beneficial to us uh, to create artificial economies, which happens all the time in the wine business because it is funded by private wealth that doesn't necessarily have a lot of business ambition. So um, you go to this winery and every single year this wine is, let's say, $100. And some years it's worth it, sure. A lot of times though, not so much. And so what ends up happening is it ends up creating this collection bubble where people buy it only in the best vintages, right, or other issues. Or people buy it every single year, but maybe they're a bit disappointed. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, my understanding is generally what happens is they declassify wine. So they'll take their most expensive stuff and just declassify it if it's not a good vintage. Um, and there are other things that they might do to kind of restructure how they bottle certain things to rework their economics. But they have flexibility, right? They flex. They're not so worried about like, we make this bottle, it's on this shelf at this store, and it needs to be on that shelf at that store all year round at this price point. Like Americans are really obsessed with this concept and I don't know enough about it to make any sense, but to me it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, and so there's um, an opportunity essentially to create a way to designate the wines mm -hmm. that are made without additives from Oregon, from this region, in a very marginal climate where you don't know exactly what's your best wine from each vintage until you've made it. And then you become essentially a quality benchmark where you're saying, look, in vintages where we have something that is worthy of origin, we will bottle it. And I don't care if it's a rosé, and that's our best wine in the vintage. Doesn't matter if it's Chenin Blanc, doesn't matter if it's Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, doesn't matter. Like, so my team and I, we are designated, or we are, we are dedicated to only finding what we think are the absolute most compelling wines from each vintage. We've never repeated any wines twice so far in, in, the, in the four vintages that we've done this. Uh, and um, for the most part, the, the most we've ever isolated in one vintage is three wines. Uh, we've done one wine in one vintage only. And to give you some perspective of the percentage of our entire production, we bottle usually around 40 to 45, 46 different wines per year. So it is less than 10% sometimes even down to just 2% of our entire production that goes into origin. So I'm dedicated to building origin as a quality brand, not a consistency brand. And that people who know the work that my team and I do, they will eventually over time, hopefully, if we grind this out, right? They will hopefully come to know that the origin wines are our best wines from every vintage, right? And they will stand on their own. They won't need Minimus or they won't need Momero to necessarily back them up. They will, op they will kind of operate as their own, as their own entity. Interesting. So as you mentioned, that's, that's a pretty, it's a pretty radical idea to come into the industry with that kind of concept. Uh, but you said you got a better response than you expected. So tell me about the response you got, especially when you started Minimus and then when you added the other two labels. Tell me about the responses you've gotten. Well, Minimus is really tough to define. I would say that the response generally comes from <clears throat> like an educational element, right, that is really extreme, that is not provided through standard channels of like going to university or studying WSET diploma or studying certified specialists of wine, you know, credentials, right? Which are, which are amazing. But there are things that we're doing here that draw all of those people to come to us with questions and that we, that we try to answer. So we've tapped into something, right? We're providing information. We're doing work essentially that is not, that is not being done um, and is not accessible. And so we're making it accessible. And I think that the response essentially is coming from that level of person 
whether it's professional or whatever, it doesn't matter, that is hungry for knowledge online. And um, we, I believe, for the most part, that I've been drinking wine have been building this foundation of university and building this foundation of policy, for example, and, and legislation in states of California and Oregon and, and Washington, etc., um, founded on classic wine principles of Europe, mm -hmm. which makes sense in the beginning because we don't know ourselves well enough to understand how to work and we need a point of reference, but we've passed that. And usually you recognize you've passed something well after you've passed it. So I think we're kind of rewinding the clock a little bit and we're starting to realize that there's a real, real hunger for wines outside of just classic expressions. Like my Pinot Noir, for example. Let me make an example of this. If, if I pour my best Pinot Noir and somebody says, oh my gosh, this tastes just like Nuit St. George Burgundy, right, red Burgundy, I'd be super disappointed. Because that's not the point, right? Because the best thing that I can do is then go, I can pat myself and my team on the back and say, hey, we just made something that tastes like the real thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What we want with Pinot Noir and what we seek for specifically through Minimus and Origin is that singular expression that isn't linked to anywhere so that the expression of it is distinctly Oregonian and unique and that helps to build the legs, I believe, that we now stand on independently and no longer need those points of references and we can start building our own legislation and our own policies and we can start to embrace a little bit more of our own individual expression as a region. So even at the origin level, we're showcasing examples of things that most very high level wine professionals recognize as these in-between spaces mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, Chenin Blanc, which was most recently uh, released, I'm super proud of. It was. Uh, frequently commented as being somewhere in between Savignier and Swartland, South Africa, but absolutely nothing like anything else. Like it, the packaging of its own was, was very, had a strong identity, strong character of its own. And so I felt like that was one of the wines where I felt like we did, not only did we believe that, but that we had consistent feedback. So um, I think it's just really about education. I think that's where it is. I think it's an excitement essentially of newness mm -hmm. done well with a regional identity from Oregon, which right now is potentially the most exciting place to, to have wine and to make wine in the United States, in my opinion. Um, and I believe that that's just driving a, a ton of excitement, you know what I mean? Because it's, especially for people who have been studying wine for a really long time, it's, it's, it's new, you know? And they're still hungry for knowledge, so they're absorbing it. Tell me a little bit about how, how these ideas came to you as you were learning wine, both academically learning it and then learning how to make wine. It's pretty quick from that to starting your own project with these, all these ideas. So tell me about how that kind of originated. Were you, was it rebelling against something? Was it just like, hey, this, none of these things fit what I want to do, this is what I want to do? How did it come about? It originated in uh, wanting to accelerate my growth as a winemaker. We make wine once a year and that means that we learn slowly, basically. Uh, I wanted to accelerate that. I, I, I'm really passionate about wine globally, right? I appreciate wines in so many different styles from so many different places, and I consistently still, to this day, drink globally. I realized that I had collected enough information that when I really opened my eyes and I looked around, and I also started talking more and getting more established in the community and meeting other professionals here, there were these conversations that kept popping up that the Willamette Valley is too big. It's way too big as an AVA. And 
although we're chopping it up intelligently into nested AVAs and whatnot, it's so large, uh, 3 million square acres, right? It's so large that we're seeing that there's enough diversity in soil and pockets of temperature and aspect and everything that uh, there's a, like a huge list of grape varieties we can grow. It's amazing, it's amazing. So it became clear to me that early on, I felt like, okay, I don't, I don't really believe that I necessarily am going to make Pinot Noir better than the best producers out here. And even if I could, and that was my ambition, I wouldn't feel good about it, right? And two, that's not a particularly interesting place to live. Right, I don't wanna come here and make Pinot Noir. There's plenty of good Pinot Noir here. So I felt like I wanna live here and I want this place to be more interesting. So I'm going to try to think about things, combine my personal experience of tasting and drinking wine, traveling and talking to other professionals, and my scientific background, plus my hands-on skills at the time that I started to accumulate, mm -hmm. and try to make the best educated guesses that I could about some other things that I might be able to bring to the community to enrich in this experience for everybody. And that's really what it's rooted in. And I'm still asking a lot of questions and I still have a lot of curiosities and things. I don't see us slowing down anytime soon. Um, our greatest limitation is access of ingredients because even though I've proven this, in my opinion, I've proven this many years ago, uh, that this is something that is desired in the market and that people are appreciating locally and abroad mm -hmm. uh, and that we ourselves are having a great time doing this. <laughs> um, vineyard owners, landowners are still terrified to plant the ingredients that I need. We're making headway and we're definitely making some serious ground. And so it's just a matter of time. Unfortunately, we're all still really young here. Um, and so we're gonna, we're gonna see this through for the rest, of our, through the rest of our lives here. And that's super special. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think if we can execute that. Tell me, tell me about the ingredients people don't wanna, don't wanna grow. Are you talking about certain varietals people don't wanna grow? Yeah. Uh, how do you change people's minds? Is it just proof in the pudding? <laughs> <laughs> and economics. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to show like, oh my gosh, that wine's delicious. But then you need to be transparent on the economics as well. You need to show them the yields in the vineyard, uh, how it may have differed in terms of um, cost of farming. You know, is it a more labor intensive grape to grow? Does it need more hands-on work? You know, how, like how sensitive is it to the environment? Is it more or less susceptible to certain types of natural pressures like powdery mildew or botrytis, things like that. Um, and then you need to show also on top of that that the wine can be sold in the market and it can fetch a price that then creates an economic sustainable business model that is not propped up by an artificial economy, that it's actually a real business mm -hmm. model and that there's actually profits to be made and that it is sustainable and, and good and, and in demand. And that takes, that takes years. So right now we're in the stage that we've proven the quality. Uh, we've also proven the economics in the vineyard. And in my opinion, we've already proven, but I think we're still in the stage of proving, and that's fine, that the, that the, market, wants, that the market wants these things. And so I think um, we've already been able to have enough people jump on board at this point already, which I think is a complex thing that we can try to talk about later, but um, I believe that, I believe that we're, you know, we're, making, we're making headway. Um, and it's just for the sake of just this being a more interesting place. It's not, it's not about a better or worse kind of a discussion, right? Uh, I think that this is just a much more interesting way to contribute to, to our economy and to just living here and drinking local wine and having more to choose from. 
So what's been the reaction from the folks who believe that the ultimate, like you say, the ultimate, the ultimate thing you can do here is to make a wine that you could, would mistake for Burgundian? How do the kind of the old guard respond to these ideas? And have you been able to change anybody's mind? I don't talk to the old guard, which is not smart, necessarily. Um, I think that I think that everybody is evolving, and what I mean by that is, let's just talk generic, ger generally speaking. I think that I think that the industry is embracing much more um, our local wines and our local expression, and being proud of showing that mm -hmm. uh, globally, which I think is a huge breakthrough for us culturally. And I think that in some cases, some of the some of the founders that are still producing wine and, and some of the original generation have uh, preserved or tried to preserve uh, a certain identity of who they are because when you're established to that level, it's very tough to kind of evolve your model, right? It, it can be tough to change your story and things like that. So I think that that's maybe a benefit to some of the, the second and third generation now. I would consider myself maybe a third generation, but where we have more flexibility still to kind of create the story and we can benefit from all that groundwork that they did to really break through to get us to where we are now, which is, which is incredible. Um, but I have witnessed too, I have witnessed that some are evolving their story and it's been successful for them. They've planted some new grape varieties to kind of spice up their diversity of what they're offering. And as far as I can tell from a, a distance, it's doing wonders for their business. Um, I believe style of wine is changing somewhat because we're responding to climate change. Uh, I can't say that we're global warming, I'm not trying to take that stance or anything, but we definitely don't have the same weather patterns for wh whatever that's coming from. Mm -hmm. We don't have the same weather patterns that we used to have in the, in the 70s, 80s, or even early 90s. So the wines are just gonna be different from a response to our natural environment. I also believe that we're culturally changing how we view wine and how we appreciate wine and what we wanna spend in terms of like what we feel is worth what we've spent because the the power of the critic doesn't exist very much anymore um, we've they've kind of lost a lot of their footing mm -hmm. so you know when you look at a lot of the major magazines yeah they're still in there and yes they still have significance to some degree but some of them are starting to really strongly distance themselves from other media publications and things like that to identify themselves as a style when that used to be critique, when like when the when the community and the winemaking industry used to critique that, they used to say, "Look, that producer only gives high scores to giant bombastic oaky whatever dot dot dot." Right? They're not objective. Mm -hmm. And then this producer likes really restrained, low acid, you know, whatever. They they drink primarily European wine mm -hmm. and have this kind of a, an objective. And that used to be a bit dangerous to associate that. I can think of one person that benefited from that and it ended up being okay, but it was ultimately the demise of their empire um, at, at eventually. Um, now I think we're starting to see media embrace a little bit more of like, no, this is what we believe in, this is what we're gonna stand up for. And, and there's one, I don't wanna name names, but there's one magazine in particular that I think has really stepped up uh, and has shown their face a lot here in Oregon over the last 18 months that I think is, uh, is an advocate for wines that uh, Oregon naturally sort of fits into and I think they get it and it's refreshing. Um, I probably just went off on a tangent, so that's, am I answering the question? That's what we're doing here. Am I answering the question? <laughs> so, um, if if you were, uh, if you if you were to tell someone or ask someone to reconsider Oregon wine or what, say Willamette Valley wine, what would you tell them in terms of 
the the paradigm you could take them to? Like, what 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 is it about what we always what we've always believed about Oregon wine that you would say, hey, what about this? If you could like distill it down. Um, the best way I can answer that would be to try to speak to somebody who doesn't live here and has maybe never visited here for the sake of touring the wine industry. Mm -hmm. We started this industry, right? Pioneers started this industry with a creative approach. They had ideas about things that would work, but they, they planted multiple grape varieties. Mm -hmm. And we lost all of that. I mean, some of it exists for sure, but like we lost that spirit. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's valid that we lost it. I, I support that we lost it in a way. And what I mean by that is like, I can't imagine, I cannot fathom what it would have been like to plant a vineyard here in 1965 or 1966, right? Depending. When I go out to the Charles Corey original vineyard out there at David Hill and you stand there and you look at the mountains and you think about where you are, I can't even wrap my brain around how they did that 52 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was hard times. I, I just so much admiration for what happened. At some point, my understanding is around the mid-ish, mid late 1970s, they had some like crazy, crazy international success with Pinot Noir specifically. And I think that that was something that united them and finally gave some validation to all the hard work they were doing and gave them something to focus on. And that allowed them to build the foundation that we now all work off of, okay? And I believe that might have been necessary. If you think about the small amount of people back then, the challenges of the wine market at the time, we didn't have nearly the diversity of wine styles available being imported, right? Like it was a much narrower window of wine drinkers and also wine styles available to wine drinkers in America. So I felt like that was the smart move. Mm -hmm. I don't think they should have eliminated an experimentation, but I'm, it's, I, think it was, I think it was very smart for them to focus. So fast forward now, we are embracing experimentation again. And there are many reasons for that. I think it's incredibly wise, and I think it's healthy. And when I talk to somebody, when I'm traveling, I travel a lot. When I talk to somebody about our region and they say, oh, I, I've never knew that this stuff happened there. I thought Oregon equaled Pinot Noir. And I say, kind of, you know, yeah, but like there's a lot of cool stuff happening in addition to that, and it's growing. And we're seeing this boom, I think, in expanding on what we are capable of. The problem is, is that the scale of it's quite small, so a lot of these people don't, a lot of people in general don't know the wines exist. Mm -hmm. And um, oftentimes too, the wines might just be sold directly out of, let's say a winery or a tasting room or maybe a direct-to-consumer program that wineries run. And so the wines don't even get like, sent out to the market. Right. So I always encourage people, come to Oregon and tour the wine industry, go to wineries. In many cases, you'll find a winery that has something Right, a hundred case batch of Tokai Friulano or, or whatever, there are many, many different things. And you'll find really cool stuff, but you gotta come here. And that's one of the greatest things about coming here is there's this di discovery aspect, essentially, that I feel like hooks, like, like really, not hooks, but like really connects with people in a way that like makes them more excited mm -hmm. on top of all the beauty and everything that exists here and everything else. And so I feel like that's a helpful tool to kind of generate uh, generate more tourism and more interest generally in the region for, for sort of all things good and delicious. Yeah? Sure. Yeah. So, um, 
answering. I lost my train of thought there. I was going to ask you a good question. What was it? Um, if, uh, so for grapes now, for what you want to do, are you going outside the region? Or what, what, is your, what are your sources now for your experimentations? I'll go, I'll go as far as I have to go. Um, I'm currently working with the Umqua Valley, the Elkton AVA, mm -hmm. Applegate, and Rogue. Most of the wines we make, I'd estimate maybe around 80% are, are well, I'm valley based. And then we also work with vineyards in the Columbia Gorge, both on the Washington and Oregon side. So we have to search far and wide to find interesting ingredients. Um, and I'm okay with that because honestly, it's not so much about me thinking only about grapes that I can grow here around my home. Mm -hmm. It's also about working with grapes that I don't believe would be conducive to here at all anyway. And the only opportunity for me to work with Vermentino, for example, or Trigue Nacional is to go down to the Applegate Valley. Mm -hmm. So, um, which leads me to another question, which is, I feel, I feel as though the discovery aspect, like we're so hungry, right, for these things that we're bending a lot of, um, other principles or philosophies that we have that would be ideal, right? But I asked Santa Claus to be my business partner, and uh, and he said no a long time ago. And um, and I have we have to work with what we have access to. Mm -hmm. So that's creating a very complex logistical business, and it also means that we have an insane amount of products because a lot of the wines we make are still single barrel or let's say maximum at least four barrels or less which would be equivalent of 100 case production. You can't have a company on that because you need to have enough wine as a lump sum to generate revenue to support all this structure, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so we're creating. We're constantly and constantly creating and looking at things to, uh, to, to build some kind of stability. Um, and all the while we have been focusing on trying to diversify where we live because ideally for me, I think, where I myself, I don't want to speak for my team, but where I feel like I want to get to later on in life is to continue to f refine here, right? I would, I would like to work 100% in the Walnut Valley, but it's just not feasible without, um, without some significant uh, resources to plant mm -hmm. things that we need. So speaking of that, do you have any intention, with, given the difficulty you've had finding people to grow grapes here, have you, have you given thought to planting your own vineyard? Yeah, I would have done it a while ago, but there are two things. One is, uh, a while ago, I, I didn't know enough, right? Mm -hmm. I still would say that I don't know a lot to be like 100% sure on every decision I would make. So for sure, at this point, I would still make some mistakes in developing an estate vineyard. So I want to get to a point to where I feel confident enough that we've done enough experimentation and have seen some consistency, right, to where I can say, yes, this grape variety on this soil seems to be the best match, and this grape variety. Um, the other thing, too, is uh, in order for me to consider it, it would require investment that is beyond my reach. So it's just not an option right now. Mm -hmm. I think that the way to start with a smaller amount of money in this industry to eventually build something that might be an estate vineyard and everything like that is to actually start with a winery first mm -hmm. and then try to build a brand and try to build production and, and, and have a company essentially that eventually can have enough profitability that can leverage developing an estate instead of the other way around. I think if you can start with enough money in the beginning and just do it all at once, I think that's the way to go. But I mean, 
there are very few, you know, there are very few opportunities for that, True. unfortunately. You know, it's expensive. Uh, the other thing, oh, the other thing is that an estate vineyard for what we do is not particularly interesting sometimes. Uh, somebody asked me this recently. I can't remember what came up. I'll try to remember how I define this, but because of the complexity of the grape mix that we have and the different styles of wine we're making, I think if we were to build a single estate vineyard, it would cut out a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Because that piece of land, once it's on that soil, right, and once we've got those grapes in that aspect and you know the climate, the local climate and everything around there, it's definitely going to eliminate some of the work that we do if we just distilled ourselves down to that. So we'd have to cut out a lot of stuff, basically. Which isn't necessarily a bad idea, but for now, like, where I'm at and where I think my team is at, we're still so interested in exploring more. I think I would rather just work with like, let's say a half a dozen farmers mm -hmm. that work at a very high level, work organically, in different parts of the Willamette Valley, right? On different soils and different ways. And we could say, okay, can we try this here? And on your property, can we try this? And on your property, can we try this? And start to actually set up what I would consider to be like little localized research stations. Mm -hmm. um, and then start to really understand um, in a broader network, like to take to take what our work basically and apply it across the region in a broader way that's more methodical, that is more um, scientific in a, in a sense that we can collect much more information. Because I think that the work that we're doing, and I think the work that's already been done, mm -hmm. right, by from the very beginning, is going to continue to take generations and generations to refine and to understand and everything like that. Sure. So. I feel like it's a little bit less about me making up my own mind and saying this works and then telling everybody else that that's what you should be doing, opposed to just being respectful and collecting data, right? I feel like we should always be preparing for the next generation uh, because this is such a slow industry. I feel like it's a kind of a multi-generational business, right? Even when a family starts a winery, I feel like it isn't until probably their grandkids really get up and going that they've really kind of, you know, paid off the land and like, gotten to a place right where things are more established and so I think I think that I I think that from now uh, an estate vineyard to some degree without you know exceptional investment um, could actually potentially be somewhat limiting to that and that's more important to me than than being right <laughs> or telling people they're wrong or just you know limiting the possibilities so if I can find financial backing to keep pushing things I'll do it until I you know, until I can't anymore. Give me an example of some of the things you'd like to see grown here, either that aren't grown at all or that aren't grown in, in any kind of quantity. What kind of grapes are you, are you thinking would succeed here or would you like to try? So we have attempted somewhere around 30 different grape varieties here in the valley so far. Mm -hmm. um, some of them haven't worked, for sure. Uh, some of them, I think, have been more successful than Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that there are some that are just like good, like really good. But I think we've hit a few things that have like serious potential for a quality level that we haven't actually seen yet. Um, and I'll talk about this later, but what I would like to spend, I think, the time on now to answer this question is, because um, this interview could just keep going. I want to try to I want to try to get like certain key points you know that I think are really important. Sure. Um, 
a lot of the grapes that I believe that, that would work incredibly well here aren't, aren't available in the United States. So they need to be quarantined mm -hmm. in, in, into the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's highly possible. And honestly, it's not that big of a deal. And it's not even all that expensive. Which is why I want to really kind of get this on tape, is I want to tell people that uh, if you're going to establish a vineyard, uh, if you're going to establish a vineyard and it costs millions of dollars to do so, um, it is an insanely bad idea and really short-sighted to not invest a portion of that development of that land in quarantining grape varieties that are not available in the U.S. for either your own proprietary rights that you can then charge royalties for or just for public record, which is what I would prefer, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so you can really bring in anything from Europe or, or wherever it's going to come from into the United States just by communicating with Foundation Plant Services and coordinating where the plant material is going to come from and doing one of two things. These are the two options that I know of. There might be more. One is you can just write compelling, a compelling letter with evidence uh, that your region where you're planting could really benefit from this grape. Mm -hmm. You can actually encourage the foundation to, in, to import and quarantine this stuff for free. It'll be for public record, of course. Mm -hmm. There's a second option where you don't do that, and you can spend about $3,000, $3,500 to quarantine in a selection of anything that you want, and it'll still be public record, but you pay that money. Mm -hmm. And $3,500 to me is, uh, is an insignificant amount of money when you're talking about millions of dollars in investment. The third option is you can spend quite a bit more, and I believe it's... I believe it's like ten, fifteen thousand, or something, maybe, mm -hmm. where you can actually have them do the same process, but then you own the rights to it, and you don't have to share it with anybody. But they will preserve it at the at the foundation uh, for you. They'll make vines for you to kind of get started and everything else. And I think that um, I think that that is an incredibly important step that we need um, sort of large-scale investment on. So it'd be really awesome to create a crowdfunding campaign where we can raise, you know. I don't know, quarter million or whatever, and to bring in 10 different selections of, you know, 30 or 40 different grape varieties to have like really broad genetic diversity, and then donate that money to Foundation Plant Services to do all that work, I think would be an extraordinary effort. And I think would be kind of the emphasis of the answer to that question for now. There is a good amount of material though that is here, and we are playing with it, which is why we already have several different grape varieties that we're trying. And I believe in many cases, the quality of the genetics is not very good. So sometimes we're testing something that is a selection that was brought into the United States that's very high yielding. It's like a high production genetic mutation of this thing, okay? Mm -hmm. So we don't necessarily have the best genetics, which limits to some degree the quality of our results, okay? Um, I, many, many years ago, I had a conversation with who is now one of my best friends in this industry. Uh, that I think is, is much smarter than I am, uh, um, that pointed out to me, and, or at least helped me kind of understand this, this early idea, this feeling that I had that, that this was not um, at all like Burgundy. In fact, the only thing that Oregon has in common with Burgundy is we grow the same grapes, but that's not, literally that's it. The climate's not the same, soil's not the same, culture's not the same, there is nothing the same. It's just a grape, okay? This region is capable of so much, okay? And, it seems as though where we live and what our climate is capable of and our soils are capable of is much, much more similar to the Alps 
and all the countries essentially that surround the Alps and Switzerland itself. And and if you think about all the countries that border, right? Switzerland and Switzerland as well. The number of grape varieties that we can play around with is off the charts. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that's really kind of the, the, the point of reference that we should be looking at. And in the Alps, Pinot Noir grows. So, right, so it fits there, mm -hmm. but it's more similar to there than it is to Burgundy. And if we had established ourselves on a narrative that was about the Alps, I think that we wouldn't have lost so much of the initial effort that was done here to plant Riesling, Semillon, Pinot Blanc, and other aromatic whites, Gewürztraminer. And I think we would have a much larger percentage of the industry still established on those grapes. So we're starting to see uh, a really large reinvestment in those vineyards where there's old vines that are still established. And the quality level of these wines coming off these Riesling vines, for example, or Semillon, or uh, the Chasselas, for example, um, Milan de Bourgogne, we're starting to see a quality level out of that that we've never seen before. And it's not just because of the vine age. It's largely because we're much smarter and much more capable than we were when those vines were planted. And there's an attention that's being given there uh, and a desire from the market too that I believe um, has allowed that to happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. So given the fact that you now have Oregon, Northern Oregon, Lamont Valley, so, so much of it hanging on Pinot Noir and so much of the expectation from consumers and expectation from winemakers of Pinot Noir, what what realistic goals do you have for changing that narrative? What what do you think can you, what can you see happening to change in the next twenty to forty years? Um, I think I think Oregon would greatly benefit from being known globally as a region that makes exceptionally high quality wine, and not necessarily for there to be a flagship grape. Mm -hmm. I've never been a person that has wanted to change other people's minds by telling them some compelling argument and saying, you should be doing this instead. Um, I'm definitely known for being very outspoken in my opinions, and that's fine. Uh, but that's a bit different. I, I, I prefer that the wines that we make and the work that we're doing do most of the talking. Mm -hmm. I get worked up because I'm passionate about what I do, and that's just, you know, can't really apologize for that. Um, and so I feel like if the industry is going to change from work that we're doing here, it's hopefully going to just come from the sheer recognition, right, of the quality, and that being irrefutable, and making this place more diverse. Uh, where I think I see this industry eventually down, I don't know how far out from now, to tell you the truth. I would guess it'd be at least a couple more generations mm -hmm. from now. I don't see the Willamette Valley as sub-AVAs within the Willamette that are all planted to Pinot and Chardonnay that are defined based on the fact that the Pinot and Chardonnay taste different in the Yola Hills than they do from Dundee. Mm -hmm. They do, like, th we see that, right, and that's great. But I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a change, I think, in the climate. And I believe there's going to be a change in our culture and a change in other things that we don't see coming. It's going to cause some of these regions, essentially, to not be sustainable on Pinot Noir or Chardonnay, mm -hmm. for example. And I see the future, honestly, as the Dundee Hills being planted to all white grape varieties, for example. And 
Eola Hills being concentrated to Pinot Noir, and uh, Ribbon Ridge being concentrated to Cabernet Franc, and you know warmer like ripening grape varieties and things like that. And I feel like the sub AVAs will potentially eventually break apart from this association of just comparing each other off of two grapes to actually establishing themselves as an entirely different region from another by having completely entirely different grape varieties, the way that Beaujolais is established with Gamay, and right in Burgundy is established with Chardonnay, Pinot Noir primarily with some other things, of course, and you know having strong regional identities that are honestly no further apart from one another than our AVAs are apart from one another, yet the grape varieties are completely different, and the culture is completely different, and I believe that that is the future of the Lemon Valley. I believe the AVAs will actually start to be replanted with different grape varieties because it's not going to be far from now, potentially, that it might be too hot, for example, in certain areas. Um, elevation changes might start to occur, and so some of the vineyards at lower elevations might need to be replanted or redeveloped. And we also don't know what the market's going to ask us for, right? Um, and it's, I mean, a simple principle of just don't have all your eggs in one basket. Sure. Kind of thing. Sure. It's not very. It doesn't make me feel comfortable moving forward as the next one of the next generations. It hopefully helps to shape this place for the better. Uh, that that this entire thing could sink if if Pinot Noir became unpopular because of some pop cultural reference, like a movie or a Justin Bieber song about how he hates Pinot Noir. Like fuck, you know. Come on. There's my first cuss word. Sorry. I mean, it away, man. Yeah, the, op the opposite of the sideways effect then, is what you're saying. If the opposite of that happened, then Pinot Noir went out, of, went out of fashion. I think that's just nature. I think the reason why Pinot Noir has dominated for so long <clears throat> is because the evolution of the wine industry was much slower. Right? I mean, if you think about it, like, there are more people on the planet now, and there's more food diversity, and international commerce, and all this other kinds of stuff is just mixing stuff all over the place. And it's creating an instability in loyalty. And it's making things change so fast that in a profession of making wine where you maybe need to be staying relevant, mm -hmm. it's very hard to adapt to because of the time frame in which that we can respond to that, right? Sure. Um, and it's happening right now, I believe that I believe that we're in a state of implosion. And I strongly believe that I won't have to tell people about it uh, anymore, you know, pretty soon. Mm -hmm. That it'll just be evident and it'll just kind of, it'll pop it up, you know, kind of pop out for everybody to see. And I think that, I think that that'll shake things up, hopefully, in a good way, right? In a productive way, because that's what this is about. Sure. This is about making sure that we are secure, right? And making sure that we can grow and making sure that we have and you know, an economy and sort of a realistic view of how to make, you know, how to make this good for, for everybody and for all the generations to come. Give me an idea. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, give me an idea of uh, since you've started craft and since you've started your, your the three the three labels underneath it. Give me an idea of something that you're proudest of, whether it's uh, something you, a wine you produced or uh, a philosophy you followed or something that you're you're proud of that you've accomplished in the industry. Gosh. <clears throat> it could be a moment where you, a conversation you have with someone. It could be, you know. Yeah, um, let me ponder that. Can you write that down and we can try to review that? <laughs> sure. There might be something that might come out in conversation. It's, there isn't like an instant thing that just sort of comes to mind. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. sure. um, 
I definitely feel like I haven't arrived at my own level of satisfaction, so it's hard for me to identify something. Um, but something might come out in conversation as, of the rest of the interview. Sure. We'll see if we can do that. Let's talk about the future of Kraft Wine then. What do you, <clears throat> what do you hope to accomplish, you personally and for the company, hope to accomplish uh, in the near future and the long-term future? In the short-term future, which I think we've, we're at now, I would like to accomplish um, a work culture for my team and myself that um, we, that c continues essentially to encourage, <laughs> you know, pas like passionate work, right? A passionate work environment where this is f fun, right? And, and where everybody feels stable, right? And the company is stable economically and we can continue to feel comfortable to create, right? And to continue to develop this stuff and, and feel proud about what we're doing mm -hmm. um, and contribute to the community. Um, that's really the short-term goal. I want to provide a great environment for us and I want to inspire other companies to look at us as a company that's setting new benchmarks, mm -hmm. okay? For work standards and things like that. So the culture here is incredibly important to us. It's what we protect the most. Long term, uh, myself personally, uh, I can't speak for my team, I can't speak for my business partners on this, okay? Um, I would like to donate Craft Wine Company and turn it into a nonprofit organization. Interesting. Um, I would like to turn it into uh, a trade school for people that are interested in learning any aspect about the wine business where they can come here and study and work outside of the traditional uh, educational model of the university system or standardized testing such as WSET and other programs which have their validity for sure. Um, I want this to be something that can perpetuate for years and years and generations way beyond me and I, the only way I can see doing that is to donate that and to continue to have professionals essentially contributing to this and find a way to essentially establish a little bit more of like an independently funded trade school, mm -hmm. right? That is not motivated or influenced by investment from chemical companies, right? Mm -hmm. And laboratories. And doesn't require you to take humanities, right? When you don't want to go to college, you just want to like, you know, you want to just get into the profession or learn about wine because one of the things that I experienced when I was in college at Fresno was uh, I was a baby. I mean, most of the people that were in the program were 30, sort of 30 plus. So what draws people mostly into the university system is older people that have already studied something, mm -hmm. possibly had a profession for a period of time, somehow got into wine and thought, hey, I wanna try to do this. Mm -hmm. And so then they go back to school. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of hoops that they have to jump through and complexities of things, impaction of programming and, and whatnot. And, uh, and then also just that kind of sort of point of view that the university really uh, says this is, this is what you should be learning. Uh, and, and, and I wanna, I wanna, I wanna offer something outside of that. And I also would like to try to write a, uh, a, a book on craft winemaking because I don't believe that there is a very, I don't believe there is a well-written American book that describes well winemaking and marketing and vineyard management and development and things like that that is articulated in a way that doesn't require a scientific degree to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would like to also collect as much information possible that is not necessarily 
rooted in the traditional scientific method, which is that they've done this and done, you know, they thought this, they tried this, they proved this, and here you go. Mm -hmm. I want to capture what is still the craft side of winemaking that is not currently understood by science, right? Because most of what we find that we that is written about is either scientific or some sort of scientific publication, or it's written by a sommelier or somebody, right, who doesn't necessarily also have the technical ability to really kind of merge merge these things together. So uh, at some point, it'd be really fun to be able to, with in conjunction of, with my team or you know other professionals, even to collaborate to to try to to try to write that book. Sure. In the medium term, are you do you have ideas for more labels or for growth of production, or are you pretty happy with where you are? Right now, we're happy with where we are with production levels <clears throat> from a business development standpoint. You need to be smart and you need to make steps in a, in a way that makes sense. And uh, we feel like right now, we want to be at this plateau of where we currently are for a lot of complex reasons. But we need to um, take a pause because we have some developments that are going to start coming online that are going to change our business model and so sometimes you have to hit the brakes or go backwards a little bit before you make that jump and we're in that stage right now we're on pause and I have some amazing things that we're going to unleash in the next like five years that I think is going to be like I think it's just going to be mind-blowing um, and I'm excited for that and so we're holding our breath and we're just like focusing on developing that sure. for now sure. yeah. uh I mean, this could be an interesting answer. I can't wait to hear this. But what advice would you give someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry? The Oregon wine industry specifically. Um, I still believe that if you're at a point in your life where you can go to university and study enology or viticulture or wine marketing or wine business, something, you know, I believe I do believe it's incredibly valuable, and I believe that the education that I got at, found, at Fresno State helped me significantly, and still helps me significantly to this day. Um, so I would encourage I would encourage to that person to try to figure out what aspect of the business do they want to be in, so that they can try to get some kind of foundation, right, education. And if they can't, if they're older, or if financial limitations, or whatever, you know, like life, if you just can't do that, which is part of the reason why I'd like to start a trade school. The best way to get into the Oregon wine industry right now, I believe, is to just be here, show interest, be willing to work in any capacity that you have to, network, be humble, right? Mm -hmm. And just find a way to get in. And I think that where this is such a communal place that you, if you pay attention and you do good work, you will rise through the ranks. And you won't necessarily need to have a formal degree but where a formal degree will come in handy is it'll allow you to learn from apprenticeships, but then also have the scientific background, right? To be able to better make decisions for yourself so that you don't get pigeonholed into learning how to make wine from one or two people and then not really knowing how to evolve from there because you don't have, you don't have enough perspective. Mm -hmm. I would encourage, uh, to try not to drink very much local wine. Uh, and when you do, you drink wine here uh, very methodically. You taste, you analyze, you do it in panels. You know, you do it in a very structured way. You don't just casually just drink local wine because it will numb you. 
uh, and you're better off trying to when you actually drink wine for fun or whatever else. And my this is just for professional development. It's not a it's not a quality thing or whatever. But like, you need to make sure that you. Um, maintain some kind of a global perspective. Mm -hmm. So travel is, is critical. Um, having good connections with importers and people to uh, like have a regular source of information of what's happening worldwide. And then making sure that you're drinking wines outside of the region so that you're, you're keeping your palate calibrated um, to, yeah, to kind of understand why the wines here taste the way they do and not get too comfortable in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then definitely do what I didn't do, which I'm working on correcting, which is uh, go to, the, go to the, the pioneers, go to the people that have been here the longest, say hello to them, shake their hand, introduce yourself. They're amazing people and they won't necessarily turn you down just because you're new and you don't know anything, right? You don't have to be somebody to approach these people. And so I would encourage that for sure. And then long after that, come see me. And, uh, and I will uh, hopefully have some more answers uh, than I do now today. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned kind of, a, kind of a radical vision of future Wyoming Valley with AVAs. I'm curious, the, 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 the state as a whole, the, the growth of the industry over the last decade or 15 years, the fact that we're pushing 800 wineries now in the state and vineyards are being planted all the time, what do you see in the future, especially if you have a business perspective on this, what do you see in the future in terms of uh, are, we, are we entering consolidation phase where we're going to start seeing that number of wineries shrink? Uh, are we we're going to keep growing for the foreseeable future? What do you see happening in terms of like winery numbers and sort of the growth in the state? Uh, this, is, this is a weakness of mine. Uh, and what I mean by that is I'm, I'm definitely not the best person to answer this question. I don't have a lot of data. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't consider myself an authority by any means. Um, I think that the industry is always going to evolve no matter what and it's always in a state of evolution and sometimes you can see clearly now and look at the history and try to understand how we got to where we are to understand future trends to some degree uh, and I think that where we are headed in the future is honestly a little bit of everything like the industry is still really tiny and we produce like one, I can't remember what the statistic is, like 1% or mm -hmm. something of domestic wine. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, it's nothing. So we definitely have room to grow, I think, everywhere. Like we can have bigger wineries come in, we can have more small wineries open up, we can have, I, I think we can really expand everywhere. Um, so that would be my, that would be my response. Uh, I think that the generational change is probably going to create the largest impact of how, how we see the future. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it's the larger wineries moving to the area that are actually going to make Oregon globally relevant, if that makes sense. Um, and the people that I think that would be classified in the middle as neither progressive nor significant in their production of wine, whether it be volume or quality level or whatever, mm -hmm. are going to not make an impact and they're going to slowly die out. And one of the reasons why I feel like this is going to happen is because the large wineries that are moving into the area, they don't want to buy 15-acre vineyards with a house and have 30 of them with houses to maintain and move equipment from place to place to place to place. So the, this minimum 15-acre development of planting vineyards out here may come back to bite us mm -hmm. because at the time it seemed beautiful and 
it allows you, you know, to get to a point with a county for certain building permits and different land use permits and things that I don't understand super well, honestly, because um, I've never developed a vineyard. But the, um, the idea for me is that unless there is a significant amount of <clears throat> financially capable people in the next generation to come in and buy those little 15-acre vineyards and houses, uh, I see a potential for many of them to either decrease in value so significantly mm -hmm. to allow them to be purchased that it's going to damage it's going to damage pricing it's going to damage our positioning of of pinot noir in particular in the marketplace and that is a scary thing um, and so i think we're going to see a market i honestly think we're going to see a market correction uh, which will ultimately allow us to move forward in a better way so it's not a negative thing mm -hmm. it may impact some people in a negative way but you know, I hope not, but I believe that's the case. But I believe it's going to allow for a correction that needs to happen for us to move forward in a better in a better way. And then I think that I think that with the the development of new vineyards and the development or the loss potentially of some other vineyards um, may result in some of the shifting that we might see in recognizing the value of diversifying, right, or bringing in more creative ideas and potentially uh, higher levels of professionals with greater qualifications than Oregon is normally known for, if that makes sense. I mean, we just last year got our first master wine ever you know, to move into the state that mm -hmm. now works for the Oregon Wine Board. We have a second master of wine to Tim Hainai, who's now out in the Bend area. Mm -hmm. There's a master sommelier that has established himself. Like, we're starting to rise out of the incestuous industry that, that it was, which was, so communal driven and, and great and we're starting to see more and more outside influence mm -hmm. that I think in collaboration with all of this stuff is creating a lot of excitement um, but also honestly a lot of unpredictability mm -hmm. um, but it will move forward you know somehow so so you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. uh, for you for you and for for craft that you're you're excited about some things on the horizon without giving it away can you give us like a tease of something that you should, we should be excited about or should be watching for so there are, there are new grape varieties that we're planting, um, many of which will be the first plantings of them in the Northwest and some of them in the first plantings in the United States. So um, we're, we have some really high hopes of some things that we've done a tremendous amount of research on that I'm certain are going to make great wines. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited to bring that to the public in a way that I can actually show the evidence in the bottle opposed to just talking about it now and, and trying to use that in some way to just create hype or to otherwise um, disrupt kind of you know anything that's currently going on with the change of the economy here. Mm -hmm. So um, that's for me that's really mostly it is is just new vineyard development where we finally made some breakthroughs and we've found some some ways to, to diversify further from where we are and just have better, a better foundation to build from and more stability mm -hmm. uh, that I think will also allow us to work more confidently and at a higher quality level, which should allow us to just raise the bar of everything we're doing, but then also bring new exciting wines that uh, people wouldn't expect would come from Oregon. So that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything else uh, you'd like to mention? Anything I should have asked? Or any last things you'd like to say while uh, I have you here? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's always so much stuff. I mean, I should always enter, end an interview with uh, tomorrow is another day and, you know, different questions and 
there's always stuff that's left out or stuff that's forgotten. Mm -hmm. So maybe in the future there can be a uh, kind of a check-in, mm -hmm. right? Maybe in five years from now when other sure. things have changed and other developments have happened, then maybe we can have a, another discussion to kind of check in and absolutely yeah absolutely. i think that would be i think that'd be fun it's always the plan yeah. yeah cool well thank you so much for all your answers your, your candor uh we'll go ahead and wrap up the interview my pleasure thank you for joining us for this edition of the oregon wine history archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners donors and interviewees who have made our project a success be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.